kindergarten to second grade to be dismissed to children's church. And with the rest of you, open up your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 21. You'll find that on page 646, Proverbs chapter 21. This is your first time at South Shore Baptist. We'd like to welcome you. We're glad that you're here worshiping with us. It's good to be back with you after two weeks off. I'm always surprised when I go away or or pleased by two things. One is how much I miss not being here. Even just one Sunday, I just feel out of place if I'm not here with you. This is pretty cool. And the other thing is just what a blessing it is to know that uh, you have great leadership in this church, elders and pastors and I can step away and there's people here who are ready to bring God's word to you and just, uh, you know, with powers. It's great. So it's just easy to go uh, on vacation and get a tan. So I appreciate that. Well, I'll open to Proverbs chapter 21 and uh, we're going to look at verse 5 on page 646. It says in verse 5, The plans of the diligent lead to profit as surely as haste leads to poverty. Have you ever been driving around and seen on a telephone pole or something like that, those signs that say, earn 100 k from home with little effort. Call, and then it gives you a phone number. I've always been tempted to call that number just to find out, like, what in the world could one do from home with little effort and earn $100,000 a year? I mean, what is it? It's got to be something. I suppose, uh, you know, as long as there have been people looking to make money, there have been get-rich-quick make money fast kinds of schemes. Maybe you've you know, seen some of these things like take this seminar in real estate or rare coins or gemstones and we will train you to go out and purchase uh, real estate or gemstones or rare coins that people out there are selling at bargain prices and they don't know and you're going to buy it up and flip it. You know, and it only costs you a couple thousand dollars to take the course. Uh, or buy this software package and you can put in the statistics of horse races or baseball games or whatever and you can bet on it and it's a gambling software or it's a you know a market software. You can scan the stock market and this software program will tell you how to bet on the stock market and you'll make money quickly. And the software only costs you a couple thousand dollars. right? You know, there's just an endless number of uh, books and seminars and inspirational speakers and websites and schemes for how you, with minimal effort and minimal investment, can make large amounts of money. Uh, it seems to me the way to make money fast is to come up with a make money fast scheme and then market it to other people. I mean, that, to me, that would probably be the most lucrative way to go if you wanted to turn a quick profit and make some easy dollars. You know, where's the sign on the telephone pole that says, Work in a cubicle for 60 hours a week plus commute and earn $40,000 a year and slowly build wealth over your lifetime. Like, where's that sign? Where's the sign that really tells it like it is? Well, that's what we're going to think about today is this whole approach to making money. Uh, We've been studying Proverbs now since about September. And if you've sort of noticed, we've kind of looked at subunits. We've taken all these Proverbs, which are about all kinds of different things, and categorize them into different themes. So the first thing we looked at was the fear of the Lord. Who is God? What is he like? How should we fear and reverence him? And then we looked at the characteristics of a godly person. If I am fearing and reverencing God, how will that show itself in my life? And then we looked at speech in particular. We uh, saw what Proverbs had to say about what we say and how fearing God 
has a huge impact on how we talk to each other and how we use our mouths. Well, we've kind of transitioned now into a new category, and you might call this new unit of Proverbs um, work and wealth. Uh, Work and what we do with our lives and the money that we deal with. And Chris kicked us off last Sunday with an excellent sermon on hard work. You know, go to the ant, you sluggard. Isn't that a great verse? Consider his ways and be wise. And he talked about the value of hard work and how we can glorify God by being diligent with whatever it is he gives us to do. Well, today's sermon is going to kind of piggyback off that and tie it into this theme of hard work, but look at at the way we amass or build wealth and how we earn our money, which may kind of sound weird to you. You're like, why are we talking about this in church? You know, Church is God, and that's over here, that's Sunday. And then Monday through Friday is work over here, and that's where you earn money. I mean, what does that have to do with each other? But as we just sang, hallelujah to our great God. He reigns over everything. He's the Lord over all things, the stars, the moon, the birds, and my bank account. And, and so when you, when you have a vision of Christ as Lord not just a personal private savior, but Lord of all the earth, then there's nothing in our lives that doesn't come under his authority and and that we don't look at and say, okay, what does this have to do with how I serve and worship Christ? And that has to do with our money as well. And so we have here in Proverbs chapter 21.5, classic proverbial antithesis between two ways to approach wealth, and we're going to trace that back to how it relates to God. So look at verse 5 again. The plans of the diligent lead to profit as surely as haste leads to poverty. So there's two ways to approach wealth and and getting the money that we need to live in this world. One is uh, the, the way of diligence. Working hard, slowly but surely, planning, saving, investing wisely. It's a diligent, slow, lifetime kind of approach. And it says that that leads to profit. On the other hand, generally speaking, is the easy money approach. Haste leads to poverty. It's the quick deal, the deal that sounds too good to be true. And as they say, if something sounds good to be true, it probably is. The easy come money is easy go money. And so it's an approach to wealth that says, I'm going to go around and leapfrog over all the hard work. I'm going to do this simple thing that no one else knows about, and I'm going to make money quick. And, and that approach to wealth, it says here in Proverbs, it just doesn't work. It ends up leaving, leading to poverty in the opposite uh, kind of direction. Uh, maybe you heard of this book. It was popular a couple years ago called The Millionaire Next Door. Anyone read that book? Interesting book. It was a study of millionaires in America, people who were wealthy. And the question was, were there any common characteristics? And some of the things that were interesting was they found that millionaires tended to be first-generation millionaires, that it was the majority of people had earned the money themselves, and that, and that the people who uh, had become millionaires that way were really frugal. And they were kind of un, uh, ostentatious with their money. They didn't own a pair of shoes over $150. Uh, you know, their, their children didn't go to the highest end, very best boarding schools. They, they weren't part of huge country clubs necessarily. They're often just the people who look like regular Joes, but they worked hard and they saved and they built wealth over a lifetime through slow and steady work. It was just a really interesting book. And, and so this is sort of the approach that we find in Scripture is 
work hard and, and save and be frugal and approach money through diligence instead of the get-rich-quick kind of thing. And it's not just that we look for quick shortcuts to get money, but I think, especially in America with a consumerized culture, you have to tie the acquisition of wealth to the acquisition of possessions. Because the way money is framed in our sort of mental framework in our culture is that you earn money to get the things that you want. Because we're very much a consumerized culture. I mean, everything is consumerized. Our identity is consumerized. We identify ourselves by the kind of clothes we wear. Oh, you wear that brand, so you must be that kind of person. We don't buy products anymore. We buy identities and we buy worldviews when we purchase things today. You know, things have just, that's how our, our market works. And I think the same approach can be found in the way fi- people find possessions today. You know, uh, in our grandparents' generation, the idea was you worked hard, you saved, The American dream meant an opportunity to work hard and to save and to slowly build wealth. Uh, But, you know, today the American dream means I'm an American, so I should have what I want. The American dream has changed meaning. And in our grandparents' generation, if you really wanted something that you thought you needed or you wanted to purchase, you worked hard and you saved for it over time. And then when you had the money, you bought it. And then when you got it, you took care of it because you knew how hard it was to get it. But in our generation, in my generation, uh, it's like, well, look, I want it, so why shouldn't I have it? And why shouldn't I have it now? And so we get overextended with credit. And even when we get things, we buy them and then we throw them away for something else. And so there's a very um, careless approach to wealth, not only in how we gain it, but how we use it. And we need it now, we want it now, and we can't wait and do it the hard way and work slowly over time in a way that builds wealth and I would even argue builds character. Or look at uh, Proverbs 13.11. Here's another Proverbs along the same uh, vein that teaches these same ideas. It says in Proverbs 13.11, Dishonest money dwindles away, but he who gathers money little by little makes it grow. Dishonest money dwindles away, but he who gathers money little by little makes it grow. Again, there's the contrast. On the one hand, you have dishonest money. Or in this case, I, without getting into the nuances of it, I think a better translation of that Hebrew word would be, that phrase would be hasty money. And I, you know, there's an argument that I don't want to bore you with that has to do with Hebrew letters and things. But, but I think that it's hasty money. In other words, money earned quickly dwindles away. But he who gathers money a little by a little makes it grow. So again, there's that same approach uh, to wealth. And when you get the fever for fast money, I mean, look out. You know, we talked about the get-rich-quick schemes where people make quick investments and end up broke. Uh, there's also the whole issue of gambling. I think gambling is another way people come at get-rich-quick. You know, I mean, come on now. When the, when the mega bucks or whatever it is, mega something, gets over $200 million, be honest, have you not at a time thought, I wonder what I would do with $200 million. And you start, you start thinking, like, or, or, you know, if I had $200 million, what would I get to say to my boss? You, know, you, just, you start fantasizing about all of these kinds of things. And that's the mentality that's on the way to the fast approach to wealth and to our material things. Uh, and that, that's what drives a person to you know, buy the scratch ticket and go out to their car and then go back in and get another one and go back out to their car and, and oh, I want a free one and I go in and get back, you know. 
that kind of thing. It, it, it's just that approach that says, I, I want it now, I need it now, and it makes us make stupid, hasty decisions about wealth. It also, eventually, I think, leads to immoral decisions about wealth. So, you know, once you start going down the road of easy money, quick money, shortcuts, then what starts to happen is, is that ethics and morality, when it comes to our finances, start being moved to the periphery and they get fuzzy. They kind of go out of our peripheral vision. And we're willing to take some shortcuts because the goal is, I gotta have it. And I start justifying the reason that I have to have it. And so it's easy to start getting fuzzy on that. Uh, so for instance, go back to Proverbs chapter 21. It's not just hasty money, it's also dishonest money that's the problem. Look at Proverbs chapter 21 verse 6. A fortune made by a lying tongue is a fleeting vapor and a deadly snare. So, so hasty money will cost you your wealth. Dishonest money can cost you your life. It's destructive. It leads us to ruin. Or look at uh, uh, Proverbs chapter 20, verse 17. Food gained by fraud tastes sweet to a man, but he ends up with a mouth full of gravel. That's a great saying, huh? It, oh, it tastes good at first, but in the end, you've got a mouthful of rocks. There's nothing there. Or uh, look at chapter 28, verse 8. He who increases his wealth by exorbitant interests amasses it for another who will be kind to the poor. Now, you have to understand something here. In ancient Israel there were laws that outlawed charging interest on a loan to a fellow Israelite, especially a fellow Israelite who was poor. So if, so if you're an Israelite and another child of God came to you and said, you know, the, the crops failed this year, I need a loan, and you offer them a loan with interest, that was against God's law for the people of Israel. Because they're supposed to be kind. They're, they're brothers and sisters. They're all freed from slavery by God. They're supposed to care for each other. So, so when you start getting hungry for money, you start stepping on people. That's what happens. You're willing to do things that will hurt people. You're not looking out for the best interests of others and to those who really may be in need. Or uh, just look at one more, uh, chapter 15. Chapter 15, verse 27. It says, A greedy man brings trouble to his family. But he who hates bribes <clears throat> will live. You start taking a payoff. Rather than doing the right thing, we, we take a payoff. Rather than fulfilling our promises to our customers, we start cutting corners in order to make money. We start telling customers part of the truth, but not the whole truth. Because we don't want to break the deal. And so that dishonesty just starts creeping in at the fringes because our focus has moved from being on God and His righteousness to, i got to get the money. And so easy money becomes greedy, becomes dishonest money in very short order. You know, why work minimum wage at a fast food restaurant or something or, and, and earn my money slowly when I could just sell some drugs you know, and make money really quickly? Those kinds of temptations come along. <clears throat> and I think that this proverb, 1527, really gets to the nub of the issue. The real issue here is greed. It says in verse 27 again, a greedy man brings trouble to his family. 
In other words, we've got to get down to the heart of the matter. What's driving all of this desire for wealth and, and making bad decisions about get-rich-quick schemes or even becoming dishonest? And the, I think underneath it all is the love of money, is greed. See, whenever you see a sin in the Bible, you've got to do this. You've got to ask yourself, what's the sin behind the sin? Whenever the Bible says, don't do this, the reason is there's usually a sin behind the sin. We don't just sin out of the blue. It's coming out of something within, which is coming out of our sinful nature. Which is why I say it's not just that we commit sins. It's that we are sinners in need of a Savior. It goes deep. It's complex. Our, our moral fabric is corrupted way, way down. And the same thing when it comes to this whole issue of how we make money. That underneath hasty money and dishonest money is greed. It's a desire for money itself where money has become a God for us. Uh, look at this passage, 1 Timothy. Let's go to the New Testament. It's a New Testament version of the same thing. 1 Timothy chapter 6. It's on page 1177. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 6, <clears throat> verse 9. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 9. It says, people who want to get rich. There it is. There's the heart. The heart motivation is, I want it. I want rich. They fall into temptation and a trap. And into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. So people fall into ruin and destruction. Why? Because they've committed sins and temptation and they've given in to hasty money and dishonest money. Why? Because at the heart level, the root level, the sin behind the sin, they want to get rich. And their heart is set on making money quickly. And then you get verse 10. One of these verses that everyone's heard, but it's typically misquoted. This is an often misquoted verse. Look at verse 10. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Now, the misquote usually goes like this. Money is the root of all evil. Have you heard people say that? People who don't even know the Bible say that. Money is the root of all evil. That's not the verse. Notice, it's not money, it's the love of money. And it's not the root, it's a root. So it's the love of money that's the root of all evil. And I really want to stress that because I, my, one of my fears in putting this sermon together and preaching this was I didn't want you to think that what I was concerned about was success in business. I, I hope you're all successful in your businesses. You know, I, I hope you do well. It's not making money in business that's the problem. The problem isn't investing in a stock that goes through the roof. The problem isn't working hard to build a business and selling it for a, a tidy profit. You know, the problem isn't looking at your business and saying, you know, how could we make this more efficient and more profitable? That's not the issue. There's nothing wrong with that. But what I'm saying is, the problem is this heart love of money, which is so subtle. It's just hard to identify that when we actually fall in love with money itself and it becomes a God for us and that what we find ourselves living for and thinking about with our free mental energy, wherever we have that, and what we find ourselves talking about and orienting our schedules around seems to be really centered on this love of money. It's another religion. Well, what's the top religion in America? I think top near the top, if not the top, has to be the religion of money. We just love and worship wealth and the things that 
wealth purchases. We, just like we look to God for our security, we look to possessions and our wealth for our security. And just like we look to God for our happiness, or we're supposed to, we look instead to wealth for our happiness. And we look to it for our identity. Again, we identify ourselves by what we buy and where we live and the kind of town we're in. And we're, I'm this kind of person because I wear these kinds of clothes or drive that kind of car. Instead of finding my identity and saying, no, I'm a follower of God. We're not Christians, we're Cassians. You know, it's a different religion altogether. And so I just had to step back and ask myself the question, do I love money? Or maybe a better question is, to what extent do I love money? Because I suspect the answer is yes, in our hearts to some degree or another. All of us, no matter who you are and what job you have. It's just so easy to fall in love with wealth. Do I spend more time looking at catalogs than I do reading God's Word? And if so, why? What does that mean? Not that I'm being legalistic, like, okay, I read God's Word for ten minutes, now I've got ten minutes to look at a catalog. Woo! You know, it's, that's not the point. But where's my heart? Do you pester your parents about an iPod incessantly? Or a cell phone? Or a PS3? Or a Wii? Or whatever it is. And before it was that, it was something else, and it's going to be another thing after that. You know... Is it possible that even you as a 10-year-old or a 14-year-old have already become a worshiper of the dollar? That you've already, even watching cartoons, have been raised on commercials? And without knowing it, before you've even come to faith in Christ, you're already a worshiper of money. When does it start? Does, it, does something happen to us when we're 30? It's from childhood. It's, just, it's the religious culture in which we live. You find yourself fighting with your spouse a lot about money. We don't have enough. You need to bring more in. Why, I, why can't I spend it the way I want to spend it? I want to get this. You know, step back from those fights. And instead of justifying your position, say, what's going on in my heart? Like, why am I so hung up about money? Why are we always fighting about money as a couple? Is, could it be that... It's not a financial problem in our marriage. It's a religious problem in our marriage that we have both made money a God to which we look for for our security and hope. And the whole, the, at the root of it, our eyes are not on the Lord Jesus Christ. And because of that, because money is our hope, we're arguing over about needing more. How do you spend it? How do I spend it? We need to get our, our hearts right. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And I just have to look in my heart and say, do I love money? Instead, we have another option. Verse 11. Check this out. He says, but you, man of God, you, woman of God, you, teenager of God, flee from all this. So in other words, the, the headlong pursuit and love and passionate uh, worship of wealth and possessions is completely incompatible with the worship of Jesus Christ. You cannot serve both God and money, is what Jesus said. It's either or. And so we have to confess a false religion and adopt a true religion, flee from all this, and instead pursue. Notice the activeness of that word. Earnestly seek after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, gentleness, the character of Jesus Christ. 
He goes on to say, fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of eternal life. In other words, the energy and thought power and heart and passion that we normally put into getting things, we need to put all of that into pursuing eternal life. Or if I could take the liberty of summing all this up, I would say it this way. Do we actively treasure Jesus Christ? Is Jesus my treasure? And I don't just mean that in a kind of personal, pietistic, emotional way. I mean, do I really treasure Christ? Is He really my security and my identity and my hope and my joy? Do I treasure Jesus? Why do we come here to church? Probably a lot of reasons. Um, but, But I hope the reason that's at the center is that we are gathering as a body and committing to each other to uh, stir up our appetite for the glory of God. That what we want to do is train our souls to be hungry for Jesus. That we're getting ready for heaven where we're going to spend like forever. My daughter came to me the other day for breakfast. She goes, Dad, I was just lying in bed this morning and I was trying to think about forever. And I was like, Really? She goes, I, I just, I can't imagine. It almost doesn't even seem real. Have you ever done that where you just lay around and be like, I'm going to try to think about forever. Do that this week. Try to get your mind around forever. Forever and ever savoring that which is most glorious, which is Christ. And yet I live so often on this world as if that's not even real. That like, you know, money and things and stuff I want to buy is real. That stuff's dying. It's fading away. And so we come together as a church just as we had opened up a catalog to feed our appetite for worldly things. So we now open up the Scriptures and we're like, I want to see the beauty of God. I want to delight myself in the person and character of God so that my spiritual appetite would yearn for more of Christ. Do you actively, actively, intentionally treasure Jesus? Is He our treasure? Or is it just kind of you know songs and nice sermon? No, 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 no. But do I really treasure Him? Is that what's driving me? I was coming back from a church event this week and I had the uh, radio playing and my, uh, we had this song, In Christ Alone. You guys know that song. It was playing on a CD and, and I was kind of singing along to it. And it came to that line you know, where it says, um, For I am His and He is Mine. Bought with the precious blood of Christ. And so, it, and my son says from the back seat, Dad, I don't understand that song. I was like, what? What do you mean? He says, it says, I am his and he is mine. He goes, I understand what it means that, that, he is, that we are his, because he's God and he owns everything. He says, but Dad, what does it mean that, that he is ours? I was like, that's a good question, you know? <laughs> and granted, I'm biased, <laughs> you know, but... Uh, I think my son's the greatest, but I was like, wow, that's a great question. Do you know what it means to say, Christ is mine? That's what it means to be a Christian. And until you know what that means, you still don't get it. It's not just believing there is a God or trying to be a good person or being spiritual. It's about saying, Christ is mine, that I am a bankrupt sinner down to my toes and that I can't save myself, I'm not good enough, and I need Christ to be mine. And not just to save me from hell, but to be my life and to be my, my joy and my everything. To be a Christian is to embark on an adventure 
of growing deeper and deeper in a passionate knowledge of God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit through Jesus. That's Christianity. It's to know Him. Jesus said, this is eternal life. It says here, take hold of eternal life. What is eternal life? John 17, Jesus said, eternal life is this, that they may know you, the Father, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. It's knowing God in a personal way to be able to say, He is mine. And so I believe the antidote, the antidote to the love of money is not to change your budget or clamp down on your spending or get out of credit card debt. All those things are positive. You've got to get down to the root. I've got to get down to the root. And I've got to say, what do I love? What do I love? And I need to actively cultivate a greater appetite for Jesus. I need to learn how to treasure Jesus. Do you, even, do you know what that means? Have you experienced that? That's what you need to look for. And look what happens, friends, when we start actively treasuring God and His glory in Jesus. We get something amazing. Go back up to verse 6. Look at this. He says, But godliness, which is what comes when we're saved in Christ and start to live in Him, godliness with contentment is great gain. Look at that word, contentment. Ah, that's a beautiful word. Oh, to be content. How much does contentment cost? What's the website where I get that? <laughs> contentment? If you love money, you can never be content. They're just incompatible. To be content? To be content with my finances? To be content with my life situation? Whatever it may be? To say, I have Christ. Christ is my treasure. Yeah, this isn't the ideal thing I'm going through right now, but Christ is my treasure. And so I can be content in the midst even of difficulty and suffering. I can say it is well with my soul because Christ is my treasure. Oh, to have contentment. He says that's great gain. That's, that's where the real money is. Verse 7, we brought nothing into the world. We can take nothing out of it. You know, don't be content in this world. It's all passing away. Then get verse 8. This one blew me away. I was totally humbled by this verse. If we, Paul says, if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Do you treasure Jesus, and do I treasure Jesus so much that I could say, you know, as long as I have food and clothing, eh, that's good. I'm okay. Because I know Christ is mine. And yeah, it'll be tough, but I'm happy. Food and clothing's enough. <laughs> you know, I'd be like, food and clothing, you know, and my computer, and, you know, my Tempur-Pedic bed and my you know I'm thinking of things I really need you know that's all I need and he started grabbing all these things that I need if I have food and clothing that I will be content with that that's amazing but if we make Christ our treasure and we grow in what it means to know and love and feed upon him that's not just a pie in the sky pietism that has a tremendous effect on us because, you know, some of us, we're, right now, some of you are probably, I'm just guessing, based on percentages of things, some of you are in a financial crisis right now. And you don't know where the money's going to come from. You're out of work. You know, the economy's kind of sputtering, and you're one of the people who's feeling that. And, and you, you're kind of nervous about how you're going to pay this and how you're going to afford that. And, and I want you to look at that and say, that, see, that God is giving you an opportunity 
to learn how to treasure Christ, which is what you'll be doing forever. That He's temporarily in love pulling away from you those financial supports that, you, that we all tend to lean upon unconsciously so that, so that you can learn to trust and treasure and savor Christ and put your hope in Him. That you can learn to walk by faith. God loves you so much that He wants you closer to Him and He's even willing to take away money to make us uncomfortable so that we will go deeper in our faith with Him. This is an opportunity because God wants you to know Him. And God wants you to enter into that loving, trusting relationship. If we're saved by faith, then the most important thing you have is your faith. And so He's putting you through this trial so that you'll stop hoping in things and learn to trust Him alone. And I know that's easy for me to say who's not going through a layoff right now or something like that, but, but I feel like I have to say it because it's God's Word to trust Him. Seek first His kingdom and His righteousness and He'll take care of your needs, your food and your clothing. I think there's a word here for those of us who are in the opposite extreme, for those of us who are actually doing extremely well who financially are really well off. And we look at the, the economy and we see it having problems. And, you know, we're concerned about the business. But as far as our personal lives, I mean, it's like, we're really not that worried. It's going to be okay. And some of us are in that opposite extreme where God has blessed us richly. And, and I would just encourage you with the same words. Treasure Christ. Don't allow the financial blessings that God has given you in your business or life or whatever to cloud your clinging to Jesus. See, that's the great temptation you have facing your soul, is to rest upon financial success. It is so insidious. But look what it says in verse 17. Here's a word for you, if you find yourself in a well-off financial situation. It says, command those who are rich. So, um, I'm commanding you. <laughs> i got to obey this, alright. I'm commanding you who are rich right now, in this present world, not to be arrogant. And don't put your hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but put your hope in God. In other words, treasure Christ and don't allow the success God's giving you to, to kind of say, yeah, I trust God and the money I've made. No, no, just trust God. And what that does is it'll free you up for generosity. Verse 18, command them to do good. So I command you to do good. I command you this morning to be rich in good deeds. I command you to be generous and willing to share because in this way you're going to lay up treasure for yourselves as a firm foundation for the coming age. I mean, you know, some of you are good investors. Hey man, this is the best investment of all. And so when my treasure is in Christ and if God has chosen to bless me financially, then I now have a responsibility to use that in radical generosity to support missionaries, to help build church buildings if we go to a building project. You know, we need people to give to that or to help the guy over here who isn't doing well. And maybe you don't get a tax write-off for that. But you do it because it's a brother in Christ. So it's that kind of mentality. And then I guess I also have a word for those of us who are neither out of work but we're not also you know, blessed with financial resources. But for those of us, or probably the majority of us here who are just kind of working stiffs, and we're going to go in tomorrow to wherever it is. And maybe it's a good job, maybe not so much. And maybe the income is great, or maybe not so much. And I just want to encourage you as you go into work tomorrow to treasure Christ. 
to not look to that job and that paycheck as what you're looking to for your hope, your meaning and identity. But whatever it is. And, and so even if you're going into a job that really stinks and you just think every day, how can I get out of this job? You're still able to be content and at peace in it because that job is not defining you. It's Christ that's your treasure. And the other people are looking at you, they're not going to get it. They're going to be like, what is wrong with you? Why are you so happy? Come on, this job stinks. We all hate it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know, I have Christ. And that contentment can shine through you. And then you have to be prepared to give an answer to everyone for the hope that is within you as those opportunities arise. And so even if you don't like your job, be content. Work hard, little by little. Be diligent. Honor God by being willing to treasure Christ even in the midst of a crummy job. That's the command for you. And could it be that as our economy slows down, as we might be facing a recession, I guess we're, as of first quarter we're not officially in a recession, but as we could be heading that way, could it be that a recession would be a wonderful opportunity for the gospel? That as people around us begin to hurt financially and the God of money is exposed, like the Wizard of Oz, the great and powerful Oz, and Toto pulls back the curtain and it's just some guy over there pulling levers. And as a recession exposes the God of money just to be nothing over there pulling levers, and people start going, whoa, what's happening? That we might have an opening for Christ to say, you know, there's something else that's worth more than jobs and money and portfolios, and it's Christ. May we learn to say, like the Apostle Paul, I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through Him who gives me strength. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, show us the Son. Help us to love Jesus and to treasure Him. May it revolutionize the way we approach our jobs and our money. We pray that by treasuring Christ, we might live in a completely countercultural way. That we might become people of hope, even in the face of economic despair. That we might become people of generosity in an age of consumerism and self-absorption. Lord, we pray that our faith in You, Jesus, would be real. That we would be Christians. And that we would treasure Christ more than anything this world has to offer. Oh Lord, teach us how to honor You with our work and our wealth. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.